Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are continuing with part two of our interview with Dr. Jennifer Frey, a philosophy professor from the University of South Carolina and a fellow with the Institute for Human Ecology. You mentioned the culture as something that the family has a dependence on in a certain way. What are some ways that secular culture, I think we've maybe touched on a few of them, but what are some ways that secular culture can convey certain assumptions about our relationship with reality without our even realizing it? Yeah, I mean, so many. (laughs) I mean, I would say the big one is this assumption that the world is devoid of value Mm -hmm. and any value that gets into the world is because we put it there which is really just a license for us to do whatever we want. If you think about the way that medicine thinks of human bodies, this is something that I just finished teaching my class on medical ethics and the underlying metaphysics of contemporary medicine is a metaphysics of efficient causation. There's only room for like how questions, how does this work? How does this function? And the notion of life is not a notion of human flourishing, it's just functioning of systems, right? So the human body is just a mechanism. And from what I understand, depending on what system you specialize in as a medical doctor, sort of influences what you think life is, and there's not a lot of agreement across medical disciplines there. So some people think, you know, there's such a thing as like brain death, where the the body's still working or something, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, um, brain death as a criteria for being dead came to be non-accidentally around the same time that organ transplant surgeries were becoming a viable thing. So you can actually be alive and dead at the same time. <laughs> right? It sounds <laughs> right. like a contradiction, but it's not because they're different senses of being alive and dead. So you can be brain dead and yet your heart is beating So your blood's circulating and your lungs are working. But since you're brain dead, doctors can cut you open and harvest your organs for the purposes of transplantation. And then um, when they're done with that surgery, they will pull the plug. And then you're like dead, dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of. Lots of strange metaphysical things going on there. But also, I mean, kind of my point is just that If you think of the body just as a mechanism, then the body is just so much stuff for you to use however you want. And I do think that is the prevailing cultural view of our bodies. You know, it's just so much stuff for us to do whatever we want with it, you know, within certain bounds, you can't harm other people. Right. That's always the the fence that gets put up to sort of, you know, but of course, those notions of what constitute harm are constantly changing and tend to track political commitments. But at any rate, it's just so much stuff. And that really explains a lot <laughs> what's going on with our culture. I think it's been very difficult for the church to push back against that in a meaningful and compelling way, which is why, for example, I think it's like 90% of Catholics use contraception, even though the church considers it a mortal sin. So, you know, because the arguments against it invoke an understanding of the body as bearing with it certain goals and ends in and of itself. 
And that's just something that people don't accept anymore. Even though it's built into what we are, right? Yeah. People don't accept it anymore. Among many of those people are clergy. Let's just be honest. Yeah. And because of this kind of implicit acceptance of this thing that's just in the culture, that's like in the in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. you're talking about things meaning whatever we want them to mean. Reminded me of uh, a movie that came out a few years ago called The Founder with Michael Keaton about the acquisition of McDonald's from the oh, McDonald's. I didn't see that. No, I didn't see that. It's really good. It's yeah. not, not a happy movie, but it's, it's very entertaining. <laughs> from the McDonald's brothers by Ray Kroc, who didn't found the business, but he's the one who really made it what it is today. And mm-hmm. he explains in the end of the movie that he was so drawn to the business, partly because of the name McDonald's, the way it just kind of rolled off the tongue to him. He thought mm-hmm. it could mean anything people wanted it to mean. It didn't mm-hmm. have any interior meaning. That was kind of his banner for what it eventually became um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it got to be such a mass appeal because it could mean safety, plenty. Whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. It's up to you. Mm -hmm. And their rival Burger King adopted a a sort of similar mindset with the slogan, have it your way. Right. And when the health craze was pushing back against that in the 90s and 2000s, the the pro fast food people were saying I can do whatever I want with my body and it was kind of the mm-hmm. same sort of thing but there it was from a efficiency medical perspective versus a kind of taste hedonism pleasure perspective right. and I don't know if either of those sides would really represent where we're coming from with you know with respect to human ecology you know there's a lot there that is indicative of the trouble that we're in right yeah. because you know, this idea of have it your way Real freedom is just getting what you want. That's not real freedom. A free man is not a man who just gets what he wants because what if he wants is bad? (laughs) Then he's not free. And, you know, I mean, he could just be a slave to his appetites, which is a real form of slavery. And um, the idea of a human ecology carries with it that nature nature has norms Mm -hmm. that must be respected. And that is a limit on someone's individual self-determination, right? Like we all have to determine our own lives to a certain extent. We have to reason and make choices and we're responsible for our choices and we're responsible for our own characters to a significant extent, such that if we have a bad character Mm -hmm. and we are kind of slaves to sin, we're still responsible for being in that condition where we couldn't have made a better decision. I just think that people have lost this idea that there are real substantive limits coming from your nature as a human person with the particular body that you have and the particular society and familiar structure that you were just born into and did not choose. Yeah. It's like this idea of something I did not choose that has become so problematic for us because we think that the only things that really count are the things that we choose, not understanding this idea of the giftedness of our nature, that it was given to us and that it's a gift. Like it's good. Yeah. And actually, these limits are good. <laughs> they're good for us. Yeah, they're not just negative uh, impositions. They're also positives in the sense of they, they do make definite things possible. So if you only ever focus, if you only ever think that what matters is what you choose, it's impossible to receive a gift because the gift right, is exactly. necessarily not chosen. Well, we're getting pretty close to that condition 
where it's impossible for us to receive a gift. You know, if you just look at like a kid receiving Christmas presents, if you if you give a kid a hundred dollars to go out and well, if you give a kid two hundred dollars to go out and buy a bicycle and they do that themselves under the impression that that was their money. They're not going to enjoy the bicycle as much as if that same bicycle was given to them by their parents as a Christmas present. Mm -hmm. Like the giftedness of it changes the quality of it. And insisting on choice sort of cuts off the possibility of that positive of a thing existing in your life. Well, it also cuts off the possibility of gratitude. Yes. Which is one of the core virtues. And I think people that have lost their sense of really big cosmic gratitude of just you know, being glad that you exist. And being grateful that, you know, other people exist too. We, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any evidence to back it up, but I imagine that if somebody was suffering from anxiety on a chronic level and they were told that somebody else was grateful that they existed, that might help ameliorate that anxiety Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. on, you know, might brighten their day. And over time that might make a difference. Well, yeah, it totally would. I mean, um, I think it's Joseph Pieper who says that the first movement of loving someone is the recognition that it's good that you exist. Yeah. And I I think there's something like really profoundly important about that. And uh, Pieper's countryman, although speaking a little bit later, Joseph Ratzinger, when he was Pope Benedict, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of echoed a lot of what, what we're talking about and what John Paul II was talking about. In a 2011 address to the German parliament, he took up the concept of human ecology, saying there is also an ecology of man, saying basically what we're, what we've been saying this whole time. Uh, Man too has a nature that he must respect and that he cannot manipulate at will. And man is not merely self-creating freedom. He does not create himself. He is intellect and will, but he is also nature and his will is rightly ordered if he respects his nature. Yeah, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a message that plays especially well in Germany today. No. <laughs> yeah. Um but but the fact that the popes have been saying it for so long mm-hmm. is an indication that this has been something that needed a response for a while and is yeah. not it is not just because of the current e- ecological state of the world. No, I mean although it, it is addressing that but it's not limited to that. Yeah. The human ecology addresses human nature and that ends up like I said being a cosmic thing. So how for the the Institute for Human Ecology, mm-hmm. how does their work figure into that? I mean, the Institute for Human Ecology is specifically dedicated to advancing Catholic social teaching. And so if you look at the fellows, either the faculty fellows, which includes many faculty at CUA, but well beyond it, and then you have media fellows, you have graduate fellows. And I think possibly, although you should go to their website, iag.catholic.edu, they have, you know, are doing things with undergrads as well. But they have all kinds of they have all kinds of people involved, people in theology, people in philosophy, people in political theory, people in sociology, people in economics, people in business. And that makes sense, right? Because it because we are talking about every aspect of human nature. And the IHE is also very interested in art. So Tom Hibbs is a fellow. I'm a fellow. The IHE underwrites my podcasts. I have a literature and philosophy podcast called Sacred and Profane Love. Um, the IHE completely underwrites that podcast. Thank you very much. I love you. <laughs> and, um, you know, we just talk about philosophy and literature. 
Um, and that's very much a part of human ecology. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm super confident that John Paul II and uh, Benedict XVI would would back me up on that. So I just I think they're they're looking at all of this because it's all the best thing about the Catholic intellectual tradition is that it refuses to specialize. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's always looking at the white through the widest possible lens. And I think the Institute for Human Ecology reflects that. And I just, it's one of the best things going on right now at CUA. I'm glad you mentioned that because we're going to have links to both the Institute for Human Ecology and the Sacred and Profane Love podcast in the episode notes here. So be sure to look out for those if you're listening at home. Yeah. So right right now, actually, I'm in the middle of a three-part series with a fellow fellow in the IHE, Dr. Russell Hintinger. Uh, whose entire work, uh, whose entire life's work has been devoted to Catholic social teaching. And we're doing a three-part series on St. Augustine's Confessions. So if interested, if listeners are interested in that, uh, you should start there. I, I am interested in that because my book club just started reading Confessions, which includes me reading it for the first time. So. Oh, awesome. You should definitely <laughs> listen in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I better. Yeah. But no, your point about the cross-disciplinary uh, sort of approach is one that I think people who are not familiar with the Catholic intellectual tradition have a hard time kind of grasping because they Mm. want something specialized. They want to only approach this topic from this one angle. But I want to say that can be limiting because when people talk about properly ecological concerns, they tend to over-specialize and they miss appealing to people who maybe just don't care about soil mm-hmm. samples and you mm-hmm. know ocean salinity, not because they're bad, it's just because it's not their mm-hmm. focus. Whereas this, this kind of angle on it might make it easier to integrate ecological concerns into a broader context, into a broader set of more human concerns yes. that have well, to do with art and literature and yeah. politics and philosophy. I mean, I think, you know, biology is in a university mm-hmm. and you know, kind of one of the best meditations on the nature of a university is John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University, where he says the essence of a university is that it's a place, right, where people teach and seek what he calls universal knowledge, right? So the university is not a place that incubates experts. Yeah. A university is a place where people seek wisdom, or this kind of universal knowledge where they're trying to see how whatever they're learning from the experts fits into this broader whole. And experts are important. We need experts. I'm not saying experts are bad, but we have overvalued experts in our culture. And we see, we see this again and again and again. But the experts are not trained to look at the whole. They are trained to have a very narrow vision. And, you know, what we need in terms of leadership is something called prudence. Prudence always takes particular information, but looks to the whole and makes a good judgment. And, you know, we just cannot lose sight of that fact. And I think that sadly, I mean, many of our universities would be very proud to say that they produce experts. 
but I think I think insofar as they are producing experts, they better also they better be producing experts who have some capacity to look at the whole. But we really need our leaders to be people who can take expert knowledge and look to that greater whole. You know, I think this notion of human ecology is always looking at the totality of human nature and the conditions, all of the different conditions that are necessary for human flourishing. And realizing that the disciplines are all connected into an intelligible whole, isn't that just like a metaphor for the concern that ecologically minded people are trying to get across? Like this yeah. is all connected. The you know yes. these different yes. biomes are all connected in the same yes. way that like calculus and English literature are eventually connected one way or the other. Um, yeah. And finding those connections and bringing those out and you know helping the disciplines speak to one another and make sense of one another is what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's like a very astute analogy. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just an analogy. So we don't want to say like the fact that you planted a tree doesn't make you doesn't make you a, a novelist. <laughs> Man, but novelists can plant trees. Yeah. <laughs> and probably should. We should all be planting trees. <laughs> well, I think, you know, maybe a good place to wrap up is to see how this is still being played out in the current pontificate. Because mm -hmm. Pope Francis is also echoing this in Laudato Si. Um, mm -hmm. In paragraph 155, yeah. he says, human ecology also implies another profound reality, the relationship between human life and the moral law, which is inscribed in our nature and is necessary for the creation of a more dignified environment. Yep. I mean, that's exactly... That's exactly what he should say. <laughs> that's what that's what they've all been saying, uh, mm -hmm. you know, since at least JP two, and and really what you said at the beginning, going back to Rerum Novarum, one way or the oh, other. Oh, for sure. Almost uh, almost one hundred and fifty years now. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see, it's a it's a non accidental continuity. Right. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, Doctor Frey. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh gosh, is there anything I would like to add? I mean, I I've already mentioned it, but I do hope that people will check out the IHE website. Yeah. There's just so much amazing content there. You know, if you check out like their YouTube page, um, but you can also subscribe to I think they have a monthly newsletter and it's free and you can um see their upcoming events. So I would definitely recommend that. And, you know, I do think that people should go back and look at the encyclicals that we've been talking about and, you know, go back all the way to Rerum Novarum. It's such an important encyclical. And I think today, now, uh, more than ever. And, you know, it's good to keep in mind the continuity between that and Laudato Si, mm -hmm. because it because it truly is there. And um, And I think that's important because I think that a lot of people see the current pontificate as like some kind of rupture or break. But I think that if you drill down into the encyclicals, what you'll see is continuity. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, have, uh, we'll have links to those papal documents as well. Rerum Novarum from the 19th century, and then Gentesimus Annus from the 20th century in JP2, and then Benedict's address to the German parliament in 2011, and Laudato Si. You can see all those in the episode notes as well. Jennifer Freight, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we are joined again by Kara Bach to discuss Ladybird. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ladybird is a movie from 2017 written and directed by Greta Gerwig about a high school girl and her relationship with her mother, which we are partly doing 
because Mother's Day is coming up. So Kara, in advance, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you. And also because Greta Gerwig has a movie coming up later this summer, which you may be familiar with the source material. She is directing the Barbie movie, which is coming out the same day as Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan. And these movies cannot be more different. I was I saw an ad for Barbie and I I'm like very intrigued. It looks pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, movie people are going to have a field day when those two movies come out head to head. But Greta Gerwig has sort of an ongoing project of making movies about women and uh, women sort of grappling with their roles in society that doesn't just boil down to garden variety feminism. She directed Frances Ha, which was about kind of post-college coming of age. She did this movie, Lady Bird, which we'll get more into. Uh, She did Little Women, the Louisa May Alcott book but uh, sort of an updated treatment. And she's doing Barbie, which will be its own ball of wax entirely. I feel like the nice thing about Barbie is that there's like no storyline to be true to. Yeah, right. So like, however she takes it, I feel like, you know, you're not going to ruin anything for anybody. So this this should be a good romp. But Yeah, it's, it's not exactly like they're going to ruin what was a healthy anthropology in the Barbie universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so in this in this movie, now maybe maybe you had a different experience watching Lady Bird, but I think it's more for adults looking back on high school and maybe looking at their own relationship with their children, rather than for like high school students themselves who are in it and want a movie that like resonates with their current experience. What did, what was your sense of that? You know, it's a good question. I kind of struggle to know who this is for exactly, mm. to be honest with you. My husband and I were talking about it after we watched it because this is maybe a strange analogy, but it's got sort of a storyline of mean girls without the comedy. Like if you really like kind of follow <laughs> the beats of like, oh, she was like kind of uncool. And then she like does some stuff to like get in with the cool kids and it goes it to her goes, head a little bit. It all yeah, comes it crashing goes, down. Yeah, it goes south. She like realizes she was being a bad friend. I mean, obviously, there's like a lot more here with her mom, and like she's not coming off of living in Africa for a long time or anything <laughs> like that. But, yeah, she um, kind of wishes she could. Yeah, yeah, have an experience exactly. like that. I feel like it's hitting all the beats of a high school movie, but it's. I would agree with you. It doesn't seem like it's for high schoolers. Just because it feels like you're supposed to be aware of the fact that she's like making some really stupid decisions about like the guys that she's dating or really just one guy that she's dating. And the the relationship with her mom is very mature. So it's definitely not for high schoolers. I'm not really sure. Yeah. If it's like for a really adult group. It's- There's a lot of stressful situations for adults looking back on their own high school experiences <laughs> watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I thought it was a very difficult movie to watch. A lot of the characters are very like unlikable. And even Ladybird is pretty unlikable <laughs> throughout a lot of the movie. Timothy Chalamet's character is probably more unlikable than Ladybird. But yes. among main characters, Ladybird is also not very sympathetic. Yes. Uh, t- Timothy Chalamet's character is like hilariously unlikable. Yeah. He's like, I really enjoyed his playing of just the kind of high school guy who like 
thinks he's too smart and cool for it all, but yep. is actually like, as an adult, you're like, <laughs> oh my God, you're so dumb. Constantly reading this one book and you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in the economy as he drives around his parents, like hundred thousand dollar car. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of time elapses and we see him reading the same book and he never seems yeah. to finish it. Right? It just like, makes it's, him it's look the deeper. Same book. Yeah. yeah. He's like by himself smoking a cigarette maybe reading this book. I thought that was like just very funny. Yeah, it's interesting because like both like Ladybird is just like not a very likable character. Mm -hmm. And then her mom is also genuinely like terrible. There's no <laughs> there's no one good guy or one bad guy in this. Like there's no. plenty of fault to go around here. It was very difficult. Like I think that she does a good job with the mom at the least. You get a glimpse into the fact that like the mom also came from an abusive family. Mm -hmm. So obviously doesn't know how to like express her anxiety to her children properly. And it's, you know, obviously she's like trying to push Lady Bird to like make something of herself, but just with zero compassion and yeah. like any kind of like trying to actually guide your child, which, you know, it's complicated for parents like i think it's hard to like give your kids something that you don't have right and that's like both emotional yeah. and like physical hopefully most mother-daughter relationships aren't quite this tense yeah. but <laughs> i think every parent runs into that at some point because you're always called upon to give what your kid is yearning for on an infinite level and you just don't have infinity to give yeah like i just think a lot about like my parents are kind of almost pre-boomer there were like i was the youngest mm -hmm. my, what my older siblings are a lot older and so they're not quite boomers but you know definitely from that era of like nobody went to therapy or like worked through their issues and there are things like as an adult i'm like oh yeah that was super unhealthy wasn't it huh <laughs> it's one thing to like recognize it and to be like oh you want to do something different for your kids and it's another thing to like actually have the muscle memory yourself to act in the way that you want to act. I mean, I think so many parents yeah. would like, oh, I get angry with my kids or, you know, I have a toddler. I've like no hard things that I have gone through yet. Like my difficulty is like, please just, I'm getting you food. Just relax. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no advice to be had here, but it does make me think a lot about just like how hard it is. Like, even if you see that you want to do better by your kids and like, obviously she's trying to do the right thing by like sending her to a good school and you know they're like scraping by so that she can go to a go to college in some way shape or form and be realistic about like job prospects and things like that that i think like you see why her mom is that way but it's also sort of painful to see like how woefully short her mom is falling oh. in in actually delivering what she wants to deliver and i want to say that conflict, that internal conflict that her mom feels between the kind of mom she wants to be and the kind of mom she is acting like is always unspoken. I don't think the mother character played by Laurie Metcalf ever says at any point, like talking to her husband or whatever, like, I wish I could, you know, love her the way, you know, I know she needs to be loved. Or, she never says anything <laughs> like that. It's all below the surface. And the closest we get is those rough draft farewell notes mm -hmm. on the line paper that she never even wants to show Lady Bird. And even then we don't get to read them, right? We just see that there's a bunch of different drafts. 
the, the movie doesn't pull any punches in how mean the mom is being, but it also does a good job of showing what a painful position the mom is in. Yeah, I agree. I think that I'm curious what you think about the end of the movie, but I think like I can't decide if it's good or bad, but I feel like in the, you know, after this whole drama, which I don't know if we really want to get into like the ups and downs of this movie so much, no. but yeah, we're not going to do blow by blow. Yeah, it's not worth it. But I think, you know, in the end, there is a sort of realization that like she was being sort of like stupid and petty. And so I guess for a couple, a little bit of context, if you haven't seen the movie, but she, you know, so she's insistent that her name is not Christine. She wants to go by Ladybird, which feels very just like, I want to be somebody else. I want to be cooler. It's like definitely an act of rebellion. It's definitely an act of like rejection of her parents and like yeah. the things that they have given her. And so at the end, you know, she ends up in New York, which is just like a place where there's a bunch of other people just like her who like think they're too cool. And she's kind of like, oh, okay. I'm like not as cool as I thought I was. You know, she calls her mom to say that like, hi, it's Christine, not Lady Bird, like the the name that you gave me. And it's obviously like meant to be very significant. And I thought that it did show some growth, but I'm curious what you think. My husband thought that he, she did not show any growth at all. And he was like, <laughs> I can't believe I sat through this movie at all. This was terrible. <laughs> I think Lady Bird provides in that college party at the end, she provides some window into her decision-making about why she's going to go by her given name. Right. So she sort of leaves the name Ladybird behind her at the end because she asks that one guy at the party. This is like the first conversation she's had in college with a guy. She asks him, do you believe in God? And he's like half drunk and thinks he's really clever. And he's like, no, that's dumb or whatever. And she her response is people call each other by names their parents made up for them, but they won't believe in God. I think that line is supposed to tie together or to communicate to you the very limited growth she's gone through. Because like at the end of the movie, she's still getting drunk in college. <laughs> she's far from perfect. But that connecting of accepting what your parents have given to you, as absurd as it may seem, names their parents made up for them, with belief in God, I think is like... I think is is a neat marriage of the familial drama and maybe a higher theme that this movie is only really ever hinting at. But I, I don't think it's a mistake that she calls her mother right after walking into a church on a mm. Sunday morning of her own free will for the first time. I guess we can just get into the faith stuff, like, or I shouldn't say faith, get into the like <laughs> Catholic Call pieces. to conversion, but Wait. that is only ever sort of maybe partially answered. <laughs> Well, I mean, so she goes to Catholic school and mm -hmm. I do think it should be said that like I appreciated that this was not in any way a negative or demonizing view of Catholic school. It starts out to make you think that it is going to be negative because it cuts mm -hmm. between like the liturgical elements that are pretty lifeless in 2002 when this movie takes place. And you think, oh, okay, this is going to be about plucky high schoolers rebelling against a religious authority. We've seen this before. Yeah, totally. But it's not. And I really, I personally appreciated that they portrayed every, like the religious who are all in the movie seem to genuinely have like the best of the kids at heart. And I also appreciated that Christine herself is clear from, I mean, from the get go, she doesn't go up for communion. You know, she holds her arms crossed over her chest. So you're like, okay, so she's either like 
not practicing or not Catholic, it sort of becomes revealed that her family's not Catholic. They just want a good school where people don't get stabbed. That's yeah. the mom's <laughs> refrain is like, your brother went to public school and saw a person get stabbed. Do you want that? Yeah, exactly. So I've, I just feel like anytime that there's some kind of like overtly Catholic thing, I'm always a little bit on edge, like, oh gosh, this is going to be bad. Yeah, and I really too. appreciated that this was like, oh, like the nun had like a good sense of humor, was encouraging to her. The priest who was in there was really into theater and that was it. It's like, okay, that was great. <laughs> like he ended up having, maybe he was depressed. You see him a little later, but it's like, there wasn't some like big drama about the senior religious people in this movie. And you know what? It shows two priests. So the the really mm-hmm. theater, theatrically inclined priest uh, who has to bow out because, yeah, he's depressed or he's having some kind of psychiatric episode. And then the priest that fills in for him, it was like stereotypical high school football coach type. They're both not bad guy clergy mm-hmm. and they're very different. That yeah. portrayal, I don't see in a lot of mainstream movies. Yeah, I agree. I always felt that way about Sister Act, which is a totally other thing we could, <laughs> I will put my pitch in now. I'd love to talk about Sister Act someday, but I feel like that's one of those other rare ones where it's like, oh, that was like a really positive portrayal of people in the Catholic Church. That was lovely. So yeah, I thought that was that was refreshing. And I thought that they dealt with the like more maybe hot button issues, certainly around sex, in a way that... Well, A, it felt more genuine than I'd say a lot of movies. Maybe it's because I like I was also the class of 2003, not to <laughs> date myself here, but <laughs> I just felt like, like, I guess a couple of things. Like, first of all, I appreciate that the mom was not like pushing sex on her throw. When Christine asks about it, her mom had like a very benign answer for somebody who clearly like doesn't have a religious proclivity to say not to have sex it's sort of the yeah the standby like use protection wait until college like that kind of thing which you know this mom is a flawed character but she's not like militant yeah exactly but i also appreciated that like christine while like obviously interested in that she several times is like i'm a virgin and it wasn't made it to seem in any way like that was a character flaw of hers it was just sort of like yeah of course, you're a high school senior who like hasn't had sex yet. Like that's normal. And I sort of appreciate that it like wasn't made to be like some big deal. And it wasn't like her goal of the movie to like lose her virginity. No. And when she does, it's not exactly like a liberating moment. Mm-hmm. Right? Like she's been taken advantage of. Yeah. She's been lied to. And yeah. Really painfully so. Because the guy makes her believe that he is also a virgin going into this, which is false. And I don't know if that scene is the writer, Greta Gerwig, being critical of premarital sex, but I think it's at least critical of promiscuity. Mm. Because after her initial encounter, Christine, Lady Bird, like she gives a true moral analysis of what happened. Like, I just had a whole experience that was wrong. She says that. And that's a moment of growth for her. Meanwhile, the guy who is unapologetic about taking advantage of her Uh, voices a talking point that is used by people who are opposed to abstinence education. He says, you can't be mad at me for something I have no control over. This is like a thing people bring up when they talk about how abstinence doesn't work for high schoolers because they can't control it. So you might as well just go with it. It's like you lied. You definitely (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He has plenty of agency here. Yeah, exactly. Again, I'm not saying that this is like some 
morally upstanding movie, but it just felt like it was treating sex with at least some gravity. It's not totally hostile to a Christian anthropology that we could maybe make sense of. Mm -hmm. As far as like a cool mainstream movie goes, this is pretty friendly to where we're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. This movie was nominated for five Academy Awards. Like it was, it was a trendy pick. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, what do you think was appealing to a more mainstream audience? Because you would think that the like obvious trendy pick would be to just be a lot more down on the church and her experience in the Catholic school or like having characters who are much more moralizing about her choices. Whereas her mom's her mom's only moralizing seems to be like, don't be stupid. Like, (laughs) like get into college. Yeah. Don't waste money. Don't don't have unrealistic goals. I think the pitch to secular mainstream audiences here is that I'm not like other high school movies. I have a unique take on the high school experience and the and the the parent child experience. That's the appeal this movie is supposed to have and the sort of upper crust academy awards people I think that's what they liked about it. Mm. And for a movie like that to impress, you know, media coastal elites who have very little in common with where we're coming from, to still work in a talking point against promiscuity and maybe another one against abortion, I think is pretty glaring. Mm. That abortion scene, which I think was more uh, something that we could actually support, which we can't say say the same for everything in this movie, but, you know, they're sitting in this assembly because it's a Catholic school, they have a speaker coming in talking about a story about a woman who wanted to have an abortion and didn't. And the speaker, who is presented initially as kind of a square, uh, very uncool, not totally savvy person, is giving this talk. And she asked the the girls to guess who the, uh, the woman was in the story. And they're like, you or your sister or whoever. And she says, no, that was my mother. And this is like the gotcha moment. Like, the baby was me, and she chose to give birth to me. And most of the girls in the audience are actually surprised by this, except for Ladybird, who sort of mutters under her breath and then gets into a little back and forth with the speaker and ends up making a personal attack on the speaker's existence by saying, if, if your mom had had an abortion, we wouldn't be having this talk right now, which maybe would be better for all of us. And I think this is like, pretty unambiguously, like, we're not meant to be laughing with Lady Bird here. This is this is showcasing a severe character flaw of hers. And the yeah. fact that she's being logically consistent from a pro-choice perspective, I think is a pretty damning portrayal of the pro-choice position. Again, for what is theoretically a secular mainstream movie. Yeah, I'm not sure I would go quite so far as to say that it's like any kind of damning of the argument. But I do think that it has the right kind of cringe factor, which is appreciated. Cause I think it could easily be like, you're right. Like we're meant to be laughing with Christine. And like, instead, look how clever she is. Yeah. Instead, everybody's like, what did you just tell this woman? It'd be better. If she was dead. Like, <laughs> Which is what she told her <laughs> appropriate. Yeah. Like appropriate, appropriate reactions from all of these, all these girls, regardless yeah. of their, you know, sort of background or social status. It's like, yeah, that's like not, not okay. Yeah. And then we never see the abortion speaker again. <laughs> She's just horrified. And that's her part of the movie. Oh, doesn't Christine get like suspended or something? She does get suspended. Yeah. Another flashpoint with the mom. Like, I think Christine gets a little bit of, feels a little bit of street cred. Oh, like, ooh, I got in real trouble here. But we're not meant to disagree with the suspension sentence. No. Well, it's also, if I remember correctly, is that the scene where like she gets into it with her mom and then her mom 
And she's like, is is like genuinely like, okay, I really messed up. And you see, she's like getting really upset. But then her mom is like, do you have any idea how much money it takes to, yeah. to raise you? And like, it was, I, I guess it's a catalyst for that scene where yeah. it's like her mom, like really genuinely, it seemed like she was, okay, I messed up. That was wrong. And you kind of watch her like crumbling. And then the mom sort of being like, here's how much it costs to raise you is kind of the like final straw for her. She's just like, yeah, why am I such a burden to you? Which feels sort of connected to the I don't know if it's meant to be, but it's kind of interestingly backed on that abortion speech. The burden that this child is. Exactly. Yeah. Ladybird has to be the one to try and like justify her existence now. And, you know, she ends up going back to because that's such a crushing burden for any kid. Like once you start to understand the the real cost of the sacrifices your parents make for you, whether or not they're holding it over your head mm -hmm. and you just start to wonder, like, am I worth it? And that's what every kid wants to be reassured about and should be reassured of, to be clear. <laughs> but like she's she's sort of pushing back against this this implication that she's not worth it and she says like okay mom write down a number and i will eventually pay you back for this amount and then i won't owe you and i won't have to talk to you anymore and i thought that was really sad but like a true way that parent-child relationships can break up in in real life uh, maybe not that explicitly but that's sort of the the dynamic that can unfortunately happen a lot. I'd kind of forgotten about that scene, honestly, by the time we get to the end of the movie, but it does sort of make the reconciliation more poignant because that is, I mean, uh, as sad as I say this, like a bit of a climax in their relationship. And then, you know, the mom is writing all these notes that she ends up never actually giving to Christine, but Christine gets them because the dad gives he, them to her he anyway. He suitcase behind the mom's back. Yeah. It's like the, the ever the reconciler. Yeah, right. But it, it is interesting as the like, you. it is the little glimpse that you know that the mom also realizes that like, okay, that's not the message, but I don't know how to actually say what I want to say. Yeah, right. She never is really able to say it. And like her daughter does go off to college without the mom act ever actually saying it. And she's like in that that scene where she's driving away from the airport and then driving back and she gets back too late and her husband's there. But Christine's already gone. Like she's, you know, understandably heartbroken because she hasn't been able to say it. But fortunately, she'll be back, which was in doubt, you know. Like mm. there was a, there was a version of this where she would where Ladybird would leave and not come back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was, I will say the ending with like the, uh, the brother getting a job was also like, that was probably the, the like one little bit of, oh, it is more like a high school. And you're like, oh, it all works out. Like yeah. the, the brother finally like takes out the piercings and decides to get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think the scene we didn't get of Lady Bird or Christine coming back and reconciling with her mom or mm. understanding that her mom really does love her and thinks that Lady Bird is worth the sacrifice. I think is Greta Gerwig making this movie. I think mm. we're, we're supposed to understand this is very autobiographical. You know, her other movies, like Little Women is not that autobiographical. It's an existing story that Greta Gerwig didn't originate. Barbie, I assume, is not autobiographical. <laughs> but Greta Gerwig's from Sacramento and went to Catholic school. And maybe to your question about who is this for, I think this is most specifically for her, <laughs> about mm. her. And... I think we're meant to identify Greta Gerwig, not to say that she had the same family life, but this is her way of showing that she appreciates what her mother has done for her, even if her mom's far from perfect, 
which, you know, I don't think we can say based on this movie. I don't think this movie's evidence. But even if her mother was this imperfect, she would still appreciate her. And I think I think we're meant to say that, like, this is the movie that Christine would have made 10, 15 mm. years after the movie ends to sort of try and show her mother that she understands where she's coming from a little bit more. Mm. It's a good bow on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> which is all to say we should call our mothers. <laughs> I think so. Call your mother. <laughs> you listening at home. And to my own mom, thank you for being much more patient with me than the mom in this movie. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. And also, happy Mother's Day to you, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>